This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. It's Memorial Day weekend, a weekend where we remember those who gave their lives in service to our country. We pray that the grace of God would be with the families of anyone listening who has lost a loved one in service to our country. It's also, as Memorial Day, the start of the summertime. It's the time where we hopefully have more time on our hands. Which leads to the question, have you ever wondered what you're supposed to be doing with your time while you're waiting for something to happen? A few years back, the New York Times had an article about a Houston area airport where they were receiving some feedback, some complaints from arriving passengers. Turns out that these arriving passengers felt like they were waiting too long at the baggage claim for their bags to come in. Could you imagine such a problem? Well, the executives of the airport took notice. They took the problem seriously and they ended up hiring more people to help out, to help make adjustments to their process for getting the bags unloaded off the planes and to the baggage claim area. They reduced the average wait time down to about eight minutes, which is the industry average but the complaints kept coming. So the executives went back to work and observed the process that arriving passengers were going through. It turns out that planes were arriving at gates that were located very close to the baggage claim area. So passengers, as they got off the airplane, they only had about a minute's walk to get to the baggage claim area, which meant they had about seven minutes of time to just sit there and wait. So in a stroke of ingenuity, these executives decided to make some changes with the process itself. So what they did was they had arriving planes arrive at gates that were further down the concourse. They also took the bags and rerouted them to carousels in the baggage claim area that were further away from where the passengers would walk. So all in all, the passengers had to walk a distance that was six times greater than before, but the complaints dropped to almost zero. It illustrates the problem of unoccupied time. We do not do well when we don't know what to do. Have you ever wondered if the Christian life is like that? That it's about unoccupied time? Just last week in our series in 1 Thessalonians, we looked at the coming of the Lord. We looked at the day of the Lord. And we saw there that there's this future event that we all look forward to and anticipate. But does that mean we're just supposed to be waiting around in the present day, in this moment? We saw there, especially in chapter five, that actually what we're supposed to do is to be busy encouraging each other and building one another up. But we might wonder what exactly that looks like in this present moment. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, I wanna welcome you. This is our last week in this series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. But even for those of you who have been with us a while, it might be worth taking a few minutes just to refresh ourselves on where we've been in this journey through this letter. It is a letter. It's a letter written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy to a church called the a church comprised of the Thessalonians in a city called Thessalonica. It's a city that is located in what we call today modern-day Greece. So they wrote this letter to a church in the first century, a church that they had actually started. And in there, we see God's power at work throughout this letter, just a testimony of the things that Paul and Silas and Timothy recounted about the work of God in and among the Thessalonians. 
We saw this, for example, in chapter one, Paul said, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. God's power was evident in the fact that the Thessalonians became imitators of Paul and his companions. And they were imitators of the Lord. And not only that, but they themselves became people worth imitating to others outside in in the city of Thessalonica and even throughout the whole region around them. It was a testimony to God's power because this was a city steeped in Roman pagan idolatry. Paul summarizes their whole process of coming to faith when he says that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. That's what the Thessalonians had experienced as they turned to God from idols to wait for Christ. Paul recounts his ministry to them because God was at work, but Paul and Silas and Timothy were God's instruments in Thessalonica. And Paul just reminds them of how they were gentle, like a nursing mother with her infant. Not only that, but they were also like a father with his children. Paul uses this language of a mother and a father. And then he says how that they charge them to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. This is what Paul's whole ministry purpose was, that the Thessalonians would walk in a manner that was worthy. But in the midst of all of this, both Paul, Silas, and his companion, Timothy, but also the Thessalonians also dealt with this great situation of oppression. They faced opposition from people around them who did not want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as they faced this opposition though, God's power prevailed and he did some incredible things in their midst so that Paul summarizes his desire for the Thessalonians at the end of chapter three, where he says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And may he establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and father. This was Paul's great desire that they would be holy before God, but that they would also abound in love for each other. And in the rest of the letter, we see that Paul's focusing his attention on those things. How do they increase in love for each other? And how do they increase in their holiness towards God? We saw that in the pages since then, and we're going to see that today as we look at these final words from Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians. So we're going to pick up in chapter five, starting in verse 13 excuse me, starting in verse 12. Paul says this, starting in verse 12 of chapter five. He says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you and and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You may notice that word that recurs throughout this passage, the word brothers. It's said over and over again. It appears 19 times in this letter written by Paul. And it shows up five times just alone in these verses that I just read. It can mean brothers and sisters when it's addressed to a mixed audience of men and women. I told you just a minute ago too about how Paul had equated himself with a nursing mother with children and a father's relationship to children too when he described his own ministry to the Thessalonians. This is the language of family. This is the language that Paul wants them to think about as they think about themselves as the church. Family is really important. And when people come to Christ in some parts of the world today, sometimes even here in the United States, and definitely in a situation like many of the believers would have faced in Thessalonica, their ties with their biological families would have been jeopardized. In some cases there, they would have even been severed altogether. So Paul is reminding them of this fact that they are a family, part of a new family in Christ called the church. So Paul addresses them as such here, as we think about this. And what is a family? A family is a collection of relationships, of loving relationships towards each other. So as we think about how they grow in love for each other and how they grow in holiness towards the Lord, we should be thinking about this through the lens of relationships. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Paul talks about a relationship, first of all, with leaders when he says in verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you. Labor here is hard work, it's effort, it's toil. It's the kind of thing that people are doing among them. This isn't the work of some consultants outside of their organization or outside of a community, or in this case, outside of the family called the church. These are people in their presence who are laboring and toiling and working for them. But not only are they among them, but they are even over them, a position that conveys the idea of leadership, but it also conveys the idea of just taking an interest in them, of showing concern for them, of caring for them. Paul says that these are the kind of people who you should respect, that these are the kinds of people who you should think highly of, you should esteem them highly. Why? Because of their work. Paul said earlier, just in a phrase before this, that They're over you in the Lord. See, these are people who aren't out it for their own personal gain. They're not out to seek their own prestige or their own agenda, but they are working in the Lord, on the Lord's behalf, for the Lord's glory. These are the kind of leaders who are worthy of respect because of their work. You know, here at Calvary, we obviously have the paid staff who work hard on a regular basis, day in and day out. But at Calvary, we have a whole culture of empowering leaders. And we actually have more leaders who are not on staff than we have leaders who are on staff. I think of people like our life group leaders, our leaders in children's and student ministries. I think of leaders in men's and women's ministries. I think of leaders who lead teams of people who minister both inside the walls of our church and outside in our community. These are the leaders who pour out themselves, who give of themselves in the Lord. And it's their work that is worthy of our respect. They are the ones who 
pay a high price as many of them have jobs in addition to what they do. Many of them have families in addition to everything else that they have going on, but yet they labor in the Lord and they are worthy of our respect. So what does a community look like who waits well for the coming of the Lord? Well, first of all, it's a community that respects those who are over us. This is kind of a radical idea though. In our culture, we don't always see this kind of respect for leadership. Instead, what we actually see is people second guessing, people who maybe are questioning leadership. But Paul's call is for the church to respect those who lead over the body. That's not the only relationship though that matters because Paul also talks about another one here where he says, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There's that word again, brothers, brothers and sisters. See, he's reminding us that this is a command for everybody. This isn't only for the leaders, but everyone in the church community is to be engaged in what he's saying here. If you think about the idol, these could include people who simply don't have enough to do but it probably includes people who have a more sinister motivation for their idleness. It's people who maybe are rebellious in some way, who are insubordinate in some way. Maybe in our own language of today, maybe people who are somewhat passive aggressive. They don't wanna engage because they don't like the leaders over them and they're protesting by being idle. These are the people who Paul says should be warned. The faint-hearted might include anyone who is discouraged by opposition. The faint-hearted could be as well people who are just dealing with sickness, who have doubts, who are fearful. They could be people who think that they don't have much to contribute to the body of Christ. These are the people who need to be encouraged. And then there's the weak. People could be weak spiritually. They might be weak emotionally. They might be weak physically. They might be weak morally. Paul says that they need people to help them. And the idea of help here is of taking an interest in somebody, coming alongside of them to help them out. One of the key ingredients though, in all three of these different situations and circumstances is mentioned next, when Paul talks about being patient with them all. Patience is a characteristic that's found in God. Exodus 34 and many other places throughout scripture talk about how the Lord is slow to anger. God is slow to anger. He himself is patient. And then patience is something that we should exhibit in our own lives. Paul says that in Galatians 5, when he talks about the fruit of the spirit, that it includes patience. We are to be people who are patient because patience is required as we think about these kinds of relationships with the idle, with the faint-hearted, and with the weak. Why is patience required? Well, because it requires time and energy and effort to invest in this way into their lives, the way Paul is describing here. There's a call to sacrifice. There's a call to care and concern for these people. This is something that requires great patience. The scene here is, again, using the family language, like a family intervention, where we seek the good of the people around us. We seek their good, we seek their welfare. This is what Paul is calling us to when we think about the relationships with people among us. What does a church look like as it waits for the coming of Christ? 
It's a church that respects its leaders, but it's also a church that invests in the people around us. That's what our relationships are supposed to look like as we wait. Paul says something radical here, right at the end of this passage that we just looked at. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There's no escape clause in this. Paul says, always seek to do good, not only within our own community to one another, but to everyone, even those outside of the community. We always seek to do good, even when others do evil to us. One commentator observing this passage has written this, the proper Christian response to harmful treatment from others is not merely that of patience and non-retaliation, but additionally, the aggressive pursuit of what is best for the offending person or party. The aggressive pursuit of what is best for the offending party or person. That's a radical thing for us to consider. It goes back to Jesus's command in Matthew chapter five to love even our enemies. So let's reset for a second. Let's reset to what Paul had said at the end of chapter three, that, that his desire is that the Thessalonians would abound in love for one another and that they would increase in their holiness towards God. So we've seen in these relationships so far how they are to abound in love for one another by respecting their leaders and by investing into the lives of each other. But now he's going to shift his focus a little bit to focus more on their own relationship with the Lord himself. What does that look like, especially with regard to their attitude? Well, let's pick that up here in verse 16, where Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you wanna know the will of God for your life? Well, if you were with us in the series earlier, when we were looking at an earlier section, chapter four, we saw that God's will for their lives, for our lives is our sanctification, our holiness, that we would be set apart for God's sake and for his service. Well, here we see that this is also part of God's will. God's will is that we would rejoice always that we would be thankful in all circumstances. It's interesting how those commands are sandwiched or they sandwich this idea of praying without ceasing. This is a supernatural kind of attitude. We cannot do it without God's help. We cannot do it without his intervention in our lives. To be thankful is something that we can do at times when things are going the way we want it to. We can rejoice at times when we're happy but what about always? What about in all circumstances? No, that is a supernatural call that only God can accomplish in us. This is a distinctively Christian view. In fact, scholars have pointed out how these words like rejoice and give thanks do not show up in documents that have been recovered by archeologists from the first century and around that time. Where they show it's not in those pagan kinds of documents, but they do show up in Christian documents. Those documents show up in places like the pages of scripture and in other documents outside of scripture where Christians write to another that aren't part of the Bible, but they are part of documents that were part of the church. The idea of giving thanks, the idea of rejoicing is something that is distinctively Christian, especially when it's qualified as being in all circumstances. 
there's this attitude of gratitude that we're supposed to have. There's this attitude towards God that everything that he has given us is good. But notice a very important detail here. It says, give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. There are terrible things that happen in life. We're not to be grateful for the terrible things that happen in life. But even in those terrible things, we can give thanks because we know we have a God who's sovereign. We know we have a God who is good. We know we have a God who knows what we need before we even ask. So we should have an attitude of gratefulness towards God as we think about what it looks like to wait for Christ's coming. And part of that gratitude means gladly receiving from God all that he has given us. Let's keep reading in the text. It says in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That idea of quenching is the idea of extinguishing. That paired with do not quench the spirit brings up the imagery like we see in the day of Pentecost where these flames of fire appear when the Holy Spirit comes and is present everywhere at the day of Pentecost. The idea here is do not quench that spirit. Do not quench or resist or try to extinguish what God is doing. The Thessalonians, as they came out of idolatry, were coming out of a culture of paganism. And paganism had its own form of prophecies where people would speak these oracles from God spontaneously in some cases, but in every case, they would claim to have this word from the deities, from the gods, the various pantheon that the Romans worshiped. It's possible that as those pagan, formerly pagan people in Thessalonica, as they turned from idols to the one true living God, that they had this distaste for the prophecies that they heard in the pagan world. And maybe they were not even trusting prophecies here in the church. Quite simply, a a prophecy is a message given by God through another person for the benefit of a specific audience. It could be a word of instruction, a word of encouragement, even a word of warning. And in some cases, it seems like the Thessalonians were not even entertaining the idea of prophetic words that were being spoken. Paul says, don't despise something from God's hand though. But he does say to test them, to test everything. Now we have an extraordinary advantage over them in our own day because we have all of scripture that we can use at our disposal to test any purported word from God, any interpretation of scripture, any kind of idea as a suggestion or a word of encouragement from another person that is claiming to be from God, we can test against all of scripture. We have that great advantage in our own day. We can also test things by examining the character and the lifestyle and the commitment to the Lord of the person who's speaking it. And we can also just test the value of that encouragement or exhortation or even warning to the people it's being spoken to. We have the value of testing. And Paul says that once you've tested it, that we are to cling to everything that is good, hold fast to it, but with just as much determination to discard everything that is not good, that does not pass that test. Paul says, abstain from every form of evil, which is just a summarizing way of talking about what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ, that we keep as far away from every form of evil as possible. 
So as we wrap that up, this, all of these, these words of encouragement from Paul, all these words of instruction, we see that what it looks like for us to wait, to wait for the coming of Christ is that we should have relationships with our leaders that are respectful. We respect those over us. But not only that, we invest in those around us and that we cultivate a, a sense of gratitude for all that God has given us. But as we think about this, I think if we're honest with ourselves, this might even be a little discouraging to us. Let me tell you what I mean. When I think of relationships with leaders, I often think of how critical we can be towards leaders, how easy it is to second guess leaders and to talk about how we would have done things better if we had been in their position. That's natural, that's easy. What's not natural is to be respectful. When I think about the relationships with people around us, among us, it's so easy to not invest into others. It's so easy to just be self-concerned and self-focused with our own interests and needs rather than in the interests and needs of other people. When I think about rejoicing always, I think that is so difficult because I find it easy to rejoice when things are going my way, but it's so hard when I think about all that my life could be rather than all that it is. These commands ultimately are things that I find a little discouraging because I'm not able to live up to them in my own strength. And that's exactly the point. Let's look again at what Paul says here in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If we look back to chapter three, what we've been referring back to occasionally in the sermon, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. See, this is God's work inside of us, within the family, this community known as the church. He is the one who is faithful. As we engage in relationships with each other, these family relationships, we know that God is at work in us so that we can relate to the people around us, above us, beside us in a way that glorifies him so that our love may increase for each other. We know that he will shape our attitude so that we would receive his blessings with gratitude and so that we would have a joyful, thankful heart and disposition towards him. God is the one who is faithful to do this. So as we consider all of this, we consider Paul's words as he closes out this letter, we might ask that question one more time. What does it look like for a church community as it waits for the coming of Christ? Well, it looks like this. It's the life of a family where every relationship reflects the faithful work of God. This is what God has called us to. And this is how God empowers us through his faithfulness so that we might live this way when he returns in a way that's pleasing to him.